From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country today. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. This episode features Lyndon, Amy, Kether, and Derek from Botanist and Barrel, which has locations in Cedar Grove and Asheville, North Carolina. Botanist and Barrel offers a range of wine and ciders, highlighting low intervention fermentation techniques. Wine Class with the Wine Mouths is back. Jesse and Jessica talked to us about our first aroma compound, methoxypyrazines. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. So we want to welcome the team from Botanist and Barrel to Cork Talk. Uh, So we have with us today uh, Derek, Heather, Lyndon, and Amy. So welcome to Cork Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. So let's do some introductions. We'll start with Heather and Derek, and then we'll go to Linda and Amy. Tell people who you are and tell them what all you do at Bonus and Barrel. Sounds good. Um, I'm Heather. Um, one quarter of the, the four here that make up Botanist and Barrel. Um, I live in Cedar Grove with my husband, Derek. And I help manage the, the tasting room and oversee the production. My name is Derek. Um, I'm the specialty cider maker uh, at Boston Barrel. Um, I, along with Kether, oversee um, the, the production and, um, and uh, in the day-to-day cider making and uh, wine making production. Um, I'm Lyndon. Uh, I live up in right outside of Asheville, North Carolina with my wife, Amy. My role at Bonneson Barrel is to uh, kind of make everything click, um, but where I'm, I'm most happy um, is when I'm out in the field, either foraging um, or at one of our very diverse harvest sites across the state of North Carolina. Um, I source all the fruit for Bonneson Barrel. I do all the compliance, and I also um, curate all of our labels. Yeah. And then I sell it all. (laughs) Um, So I'm Amy. I do most of our sales um, throughout the U.S. and in the state of North Carolina. Uh, And then we, I also run our Botanist and Barrel Asheville Tasting Bar that we opened about six months ago. So Lyndon and I are still figuring out the, all of that. (laughs) That's awesome. Sounds like a... uh cohesive team for sure. So let's, there's a, there's several places I want to go here, but let's start with the name Botanist and Barrel. How did you come up with that name for the business and the brand? Well, that was quite a process. We spent, I want to say about a year tossing around ideas and just over dinner, I think Derek was actually rolling out pasta one night. That's right. It just, that one just popped and we were like, that's it. You know, and the reason that makes a whole lot of sense for us is, you know, wood's super important to what we're doing. Um, you know, wood holds on to, you know, yeast cultures. And so even our press is made of wood. 
um, we love barrel fermenting and barrel aging. So the barrel part is is kind of almost too obvious. And then the bonus part, you know, was us. <coughs> it's a great way to convey that, um, you know, we're trying to give like a, a true sense of place and show some terroir. And, you know, so we wanted to have something that, you know, directly spoke to connecting that this is not a commodity. Um, that this is, you know, grown by hands um, and then fermented and then reaches you in a glass. And the botanist part also just leaves a lot of um, room to use different fruits and herbs and other things. You sure. Know, whatever grows right. is uh, is fair game. So Excellent. If you think of science, it's like art and science, mm-hmm. botanist and barrel, who's on my other favorite producer from Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> and, and art and science goes into cider making and wine making. So uh, Absolutely. it's very appropriate. So you touched on natural wine and talking about the, the shop. So let's talk a little bit more about natural wine and cider. So what what do you mean when you say natural? For for us, when when we're saying natural, I mean you you have to look at it from from two different places. So you have to look at what happens in in the vineyard or the orchard, and then you have to look at what happens inside of your winery um, or cidery. In North Carolina, growing. Um, organically is is quite the challenge in the entire southeastern united states there's only at most a dozen orchards that are that are organic um we work with and vineyards and vineyards too i mean there's some really small sites around um muscadines yes yeah really the only hybrids will grow organically but other grapes in north carolina it's hard to find anything grown organically yeah i don't know of anybody um who has We've had some trauma in it, I think. Some vinifera. But anyways, so for, for us, you know, we focus um, <clears throat> so much of what goes on inside of our winery. And so we're, we're, we're truly focused on doing open top spontaneous fermentation with native or ambient yeast. Um, we're not using sulfite. Uh, so we're, we're never killing anything, um, any of the wild cultures. We're not finding, filtering, or, or pasteurizing. So you know, for us, when we're saying natural, it is literally doing the least amount of manipulation possible to make a wine that's still expressive of itself. So, I mean, we're, we're not, we don't get overly dogmatic about it. So, you know, if, if someone calls us and they have a bunch of like late hanging Vidal um, and it's just laden with botrytis, you know, we, we may, we're going to have to take some sort of measures. Um, otherwise, we're just going to make a bunch of vinegar. Um, but only in those instances where it's truly called for, um, will we use anything other than just fruit. Very cool. I think that's a really good approach to the winemaking. And it clearly shows that it embraces, as you mentioned, a, a true sense of place and showing that terroir. You're really saying, here's what we can produce here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it means that everything is different from batch to batch. Sure. We can yeah. try and replicate something, but there's no guarantee that will happen. <laughs> And I think that's something that, you know, a lot of times winemakers try to avoid. But I think that's something that we here in the Southeast, especially North Carolina, in the natural wine scene can really embrace because that mm-hmm. shows true character. That shows really what a true vintage is. And I think that's an awesome thing. It does. Yeah. So, yeah. And really, our only tools are the barrels that we use and time and temperature and how the fruit was grown and when it was picked. So... Those are kind of our tools in natural winemaking. <laughs> and you have to think of it, too, in, in terms of, uh, from, from my standpoint, being in production from day to day, you think of the cidery um, as, as uh, 
a living entity. So the actual space itself is a culture because it's it's constantly evolving, you know, over time. And the expression of um, of the place itself is an expression of the vintages that we're talking about that that go on, you know, from from year to year, you know. So it's an interesting arc of time uh, to to embrace and to observe, you know, as the development goes, you know, for each batch of cider and each batch of wine uh, that are, uh, that we do. You know? Very cool. Very cool. So we talked a little bit about how the name came up, but how did you all get started in deciding to do this business? This is, that's a, that's a, a dangerous question to ask <laughs> us. Um, we all came at it from, from different lenses. I'll just try to do this really quickly. Um, Kether and I had a, a grandfather that taught um, agronomy all over the world. Um, we also had a grandfather that made like bathtub wine um, to help pay his way through college. <laughs> Amy has this, um, is like a lifelong wine. She's just had the wine bug since she was probably pre-21. <laughs> um, and Derek, um, y- you know, he's been one of the better pastry chefs in the Southeast um, since he got out of culinary school. And so you just have four people that kind of in their entire, even in their youth and in their entire adult life, just loving food and beverage um, and how they play together um, and just in flavor and all of those things. Um, And so it was just kind of like this, this like perfect little storm or, or a recipe that happened and we were like, you know, we can't find the stuff we want to drink that is made locally. Like we weren't, there's still hardly anyone other than us making natural cider. Um, and we wanted, you know, cider that was grown here in the South um, and that was made in an unmanipulated way. And it just wasn't here. Um, and then this opportunity came where we were able to, you know, take over a defunct farm kind of bring it back to life, get it certified organic, started planting an orchard. And then all the things just clicked and Botanist and Barrel was born. I don't think any of us set out with like, this is what we're going to do. It just kind of unfolded. Evolved. Yeah. We never thought that people would want to, when we first opened, we only made still dry cider. And uh, I didn't necessarily think that we would be so successful (laughs) as we've been. And um, I think other people have been looking for, you know, looking for, people are looking for a healthier beverage, more sustainable beverage. Um, And uh, the response has been amazing and overwhelming. And it's taken a lot of education um, as well to get here where we are. But that's the fun part. (laughs) So let's talk about kind of the evolution then from those dry still ciders into some of the other stuff that you're doing. I mean, there's so many things that you guys have, have done over the years and well, I'm sure we'll continue to do. Um, but let's talk about kind of some of those first ciders and then how you've now evolved into also having natural wine to go with those ciders. Yeah. Um, so really one of our first ciders that we set out to make was um, a petulant natural cider. Um, and we also make a, uh, pet nat wines as well but less is more is kind of our flagship if i had to say what is botanist and barrel about in in one bottle it would be less is more and that's kind of our ethos as well 
Um, we also make pet nap blueberry wine <laughs> from our blueberry farm where everything's coming from our estate uh, grown fruit that's organic and then also nothing in, nothing out, <clears throat> which means we literally just let the, the fruit ferment and we bottle it at a certain time uh, when the gravity is just right um, enough to give it a little bit of natural bubble, which is the oldest form of making sparkling wine. It even predates champagne. Um, it was probably a happy accident. And um, we like to think it was actually done with cider before wine, but who knows? <laughs> that far back, it's tough to track things, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so we started with that. We also love fruit and co-fermentation. So we <clears throat> start uh, make a lot of fruit ciders to, to tie in the blueberries from the farm. And then we kind of wanted to just ferment every fruit we could possibly get our hands on on the East Coast, whole fruit. Uh, so we think that, you know, co-fermentation um, co using whole fruit is much better than, you know, backing in, you know, the fruit later. It's more cohesive, but it really does depend on the fruit. And we've learned a lot over the past five years uh, which fruits work the best in co-fermentation. Um, so... You know, we love to support North Carolina agriculture um, and wild and foraged things, as well as farmed fruits and especially ugly fruit. So that's kind of Lyndon's story. You can talk about the, the blueberries. We had some blueberries with um, this kind of growth that was not the most beautiful thing, but it still tasted great. And we were like, what can we do with the blueberries with the, how do you it's say It's called it? exobasidium. Exobasidium, Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Sounds scary, but it's pretty benign. Um, and so we use them to make our blueberry cider and our blueberry yeah. wine. Also, when when we're bringing blueberries to market, we sort through. We pick out the underripe and the overripe fruit, and all of that has either you know like more sugar or more acid. So you get a very well-rounded um, end product when you're using like all stages of that that blueberry growth, and instead of like throwing it in the compost pile. You know, you can put it to much better use. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, we, and that we, applies to all the ugly fruits. Yeah, we've done this with so many, you know, all the stuff that doesn't grade for grocery, um, which is a, a crazy amount of fruit. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of tons just in North Carolina alone. Wow. Um, so we've done, you know, like we've worked with hail damaged blackberries. Um, and as long as they're, they're handled properly, um, you have the exact same and sometimes even a better expression of fruit. Um, and this stuff really has no home um, other than for fermentation or for like really low quality, um, you know, juicing. And so we've kind of set out like, you know, I remember the day someone just showed up at our farm with 250 gallons of cucumber juice and they were like, well, we, we didn't know anybody else who would even have an idea of what to do with it. But that made us feel really good too, because that's, you know, kind of part of our ethos right. is that, we will um, we'll play with anything, and if you show up with fruit and it's and it's uh, in in good quality, we're gonna we're gonna ferment it one way or another. And there's a there's a just specifically there's an organic um, uh, uh, farm like within the whole um, uh, plot of land that we're on. They'll they'll bring us you know like Lyndon was saying um, you know cucumbers that they can't sell at the market, so we'll we will. Uh, cold press those off, you know, in the cidery and put them in a sea salt barrel with um, strawberries and basil. And then we'll make it go style cider, you know, out of that. And it's wonderful. 
It sounds we call them we call them ciders of opportunity. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it's a great way to make use of everything that nature gives us. So um, I, I think it's awesome. Absolutely. Yep. And on that note, we make a lot of paquettes and ciderkin, which is using the paquette is the the great skins after they've been pressed, and the ciderkin is with the apple pumice after you press off for the juice. And so you just rehydrate that and ferment it. Um, it's a lot of work, but it's a way to extract everything that's in that fruit. So really nothing's going to waste. And that's such a great philosophy to have. I mean, in, in today's modern age, you really don't find anyone who's embracing that mainstream. And I think you are all doing a really good job of that. And a lot of times yeah, folks are looking to do for to scale. Yeah, and, <laughs> and the folks, folks, a lot of folks are looking for those lighter alcohol beverages that are still very tasty, and so that's another another advantage of those uh, with the paquettes yeah. and yeah. the cider cans. Yeah, they usually come in around four to six percent. The paquettes and the cider can, so super refreshing. Yeah, in the summertime or any time when you want just a lighter a lighter beverage that's not made with um, sugar and weird chemicals. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I had to throw that in there. <laughs> That's a okay. Um, and then, did we talk about barrels? No, let's go into barrels. And the types of barrels. <clears throat> so obviously, we you know we we age in wine barrels. Most of our wines um, are wine grape wines. We're just going to use you know the neutral oak or Chardonnay or Burgundy barrels, um, but pretty neutral barrels for the wines. And then for the ciders, we kind of just go cr crazy. So we use all different type of spirit barrels. We try to use local spirit barrels when possible, like Cardinal Gin, um, End of Days out of Wilmington. Um, Etta Rhine. Etta Rhine. Oak and Grist. For net barrels, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, Turning Point Bourbon, which is also Cardinal, <clears throat> who makes Cardinal Gin. So we try to get those locally to save on and more, more sustainable to grab yeah. them from across the state than across the uh, pond in <laughs> the country. <laughs> and they're also making great spirits, so. Yeah. We're really fortunate that there's so many fantastic beverage producers in our state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's definitely. really fun. Definitely. Yeah. So yeah. we use um, Sauterne barrels is one of my favorite ciders. Pardon my French, we age in Sauterne barrels. <laughs> um, that gives it a nice kind of natural imparts a little natural false sense of sweetness to the to the cider it's kind of like our champagne of ciders <laughs> i mean we've tried so many things you know we make like a, a one that's in sea salt barrel and añejo tequila barrel and then blend it that's like our play on a margarita um maple syrup and we've had some barrels that d didn't work out so good too like i some for some reason i thought of it x vanilla extract barrel would be really good to just blend into some ciders to add a, like a little bit of like that vanilla character and weight, but it just turns out it's awful. <laughs> like even 1% is just awful. Well, you live um, in the, you learn, right? So. Yeah. You know, so it doesn't always work out, but you know, you got to well, try, right? <laughs> vanilla extract is very manipulated. So is maple syrup. So some, but sometimes ciders we've done the maple syrup barrels have turned out great. And other times, you know, they have off flavors. Tastes like soy sauce and uh, celery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you live, you learn when you try every single barrel that you can get your hands on. That's for sure. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I guess you could write a book about that someday, right? I probably we probably should. <laughs> we could definitely be a consultant for many 
<laughs> many people and save them use. a lot of uh, heartache. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. Money. Exactly. <laughs> Our next job. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so I think we're actually at a really good spot for a quick little break. I think when we get back, let's talk a little bit more about the wine and cider, uh, especially I know you mentioned vintage variation and stuff like that. So. We'll talk about what you try to always have. And, then and we'll, foraging. We'll talk about foraging. Definitely foraging, sure. too. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Jesse and Jessica, welcome back. Thanks for Thanks. having us. So what fun topic are we talking about today? Today, we are diving into the world of methoxypyrazines, oh. or pyrazines for short. Okay, I like the short name better. <laughs> <laughs> Our first compound of the series. <laughs> Excellent. So tell us a little bit more. So pyrazines are a class of chemical compounds that produce odors. It's an aromatic nitrogen-based organic compound. So think back to organic chemistry if you ever had to model your way through that like I did. No thanks. <laughs> but it, it has green vegetal or herbaceous characteristics. So think like savory smells like green bell pepper. Okay. Pyrazines are naturally present in green plant tissue. So in grapes... They're going to be mostly, mainly found in the skins and stems. And this compound is actually found in higher proportions in Bordeaux family grapes. So that's one way you can help identify the family lineage in wine. So think like Cabernet Franc and Cabernet Sauvignon. That's that vegetal green bell pepper. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and pyrazines are also one of the fundamental aroma compounds found in chocolate and coffee. And here's a fun or maybe not so fun fact, depending on how you slice it. Pyrazines have also been identified as additives in cigarette manufacturing. So hmm. vegetal characteristics. <laughs> what don't they add in that process? <laughs> well, that's true. I'm not sure what's not in there. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. So taking this back to grapes then, so uh, in wine, um, it's often something that you do find uh, quite a bit then, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so last month we were talking about, you know, kind of the levels of aromas and primary, secondary, and tertiary. So pyrazines are definitely primary aromas. So they're aromas within the grapes themselves. Winemaking doesn't change them or anything. They're just a part of grape. There is some research that different vineyard practices can help reduce them or alter them if you don't like that characteristic. And a lot of it has to do with the vegetative growth. So, you know, if you can control part of the leafy green of the vines, that can help bring the levels down. Pruning has a big role. So the interesting thing, too, with the pyrazines is the concentration in the grapes change as the grape berries form and mature. So at berry set is when the accumulation of this compound starts to happen. And it stops and starts to decline 7 to 14 days after veraison. So at harvest, pyrazine concentrations are generally 5 to 10% of their pre-veraison value. So they go down a ton. And this kind of leads to some of the theories with pyrazines that it's because of unripe fruit. So with winemaking and wine, there's an always a asterisk, but... If you harvest unripe fruit, you will have a higher amount of pyrazines than if you don't. Sometimes you still can't get rid of them, but definitely unripe fruit will give you pyrazines for sure. And that definitely makes sense with it being in the green chemical, the, the, the chemical in the green kind of mm -hmm. flesh of the yeah. grape itself. So Yeah. And then just a fun fact, in winemaking, there's this bug that causes an issue. It's the multicolored Asian lady beetle. It's a bug that was brought over from Asia actually to help control like aphid populations and it backfired 
and the beetles were first reported in North Carolina in 1992. So these beetles, there's called a ladybug taint. They're not, they're different than the actual ladybug that we're probably used to, but they, they look similar. So this ladybug taint can really ruin wine. What's interesting is that actually these beetles contain pyrazines. So they're like, mm-hmm. it's not blood, but whatever their <laughs> liquid is that flows through them um, yeah. contains a very high proportion of pyrazines. And so when they're squished, like if they get accidentally on your grapes and then they go through crush, they'll ruin your wine. And it's because they're putting so many pyrazines in your wine. Interesting. They say like one little beetle per pound of grapes can produce a taint that's noticeable. Huh. So not always part of the grape itself, but sometimes, you know, an extra contaminant. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Who would have known? I know. They say that, um, you know, like if you have a couple of beetles during your harvest, it can ruin the whole batch. It's crazy. Yep. Definitely want to get them out. Yep. Yeah. It's kind of like there was an old lady who swallowed a fly. I don't <laughs> yeah. know why she swallowed a fly to get rid of the Asian ladybug taint. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that how, that's how that goes, but okay. <laughs> it doesn't quite have the same ring to it. So did we want to talk about thresholds next? Yeah, and, and just how these present in, in wine. So. Yeah, and just to back up a little bit, the idea of a perception threshold is the level at which the average person would detect it. So just because a compound is present in wine doesn't mean it's at a level at which you're going to detect it. Pyrazines have a very low threshold. So you can detect in white wine, you can detect one to two nanograms per liter, which is really low. It's higher in reds. It's like 10 to 15 nanograms per liter. And in wine, the concentration of pyrazines is usually like one to 25 nanograms per liter. So it's very noticeable if it's part of the grape or hopefully you don't have a ladybug taint, but with it being a part of the grape, it's very noticeable. And that's why you see it more with grapes that are known to have pyrazines, because if they have it, you're probably going to detect it. That makes sense. Now, you mentioned uh, it's in white wine. I don't think I've ever noticed it in white wine. So what does the what does the aroma come through as in a white? Good question. So if you think back to that family lineage, Cab Franc, Cabernet, Cabernet Sauvignon, what else might you think of with a white? Uh, Sauvignon Blanc. You got it. So what is going to come through with that would be like a grassy characteristic. Oh, okay. And how that translates. That does make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sauvignon Blanc is really high in pyrazines. Mm-hmm. And so speaking of tasting notes, um, green bell pepper is going to be kind of that hallmark that you're looking for. But it can also translate into things like green peppercorn, jalapeno, vegetables, um, peas, asparagus, grass. I wouldn't think of that as a vegetable. <laughs> Unless you're a cow, maybe. <laughs> but can also kind of translate into green olive, fresh mint, like in red wines. Hmm. So these are some herby flavors, but not necessarily all flavor, herb flavors. So if you're noting herbs in wine, it's not always going to be because of the pyrazines, but it can be an element of that. Yeah, there's what, like 800 to 1,000 different <laughs> compounds that can be in wine. So, you know, a specific smell could actually be because of different mm-hmm. compounds at play. Interesting. And uh, speaking of at play, so how would you make the most of this if you're talking about maybe pairing it with some food or trying to really express that pyrazine? Yeah, so I guess uh, when in doubt, like, go green. So go embrace those vegetal herby characteristics. So with your Sauvignon Blanc, you could do a nice herby sauce, like chicken or fish, even tofu. Not that I do much cooking with tofu. (laughs) 
feta, chevre, something like that would, would do really pair nicely maybe. Or Thai and Vietnamese food, which is kind of our yeah. go-to, I think. And with your red wine, like if you think about the varieties that tend to have pyrazines, it's your Bordeaux varieties. And Bordeaux being a cooler area, pyrazines are kind of a hallmark to some Bordeaux wines. So with the pairing, you'll want to just think about what would be a classic Bordeaux red pairing. So maybe lamb, some type of roasted dish with a meat and potatoes and onions and herbs. Very cool. I can see all of those pairing nicely with, with that type mm-hmm. of compound. For sure. And of course, with wine, we know there's always that asterisk, but piercings can be fairly polarizing in, in the sense that to some, it can seem like a flaw and it can go back to the winemaking, like, well, these were underripe grapes that you used. For us, I mean, it's one note we can always identify now that once you smell it, you know it, like it sticks with you. And yes. you're like, there it is. So for us, I think as, you know, collectively as the wine mouths, that's something that we look for and we, we like in those varietals. Um, but it used to be maybe more considered more of a flaw, but you definitely still want to be careful that you're not overdoing it. Yeah, overdoing it. And they can also really overpower some of those other fruity characteristics and other nuances in the wine. So yeah, exactly. Don't overdo it. Always good advice. Anything else you'd like to tell us about the pyrazines? I think that covers it. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Well, Jesse and Jessica, thank you very much for the talk about pyrazines. We definitely appreciate it. And we're looking forward to the next compound. Thank Thank you. you. You can find out more information about the Wine Mouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at Wine Mouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. All right, so we are back with the the team here at Bonnes and Barrel. So let's talk a little bit about the ciders and wines that you try to offer. I know that because of your business model and the way that you make your ciders, the way that you make your wines, you often will get what you have and make what you get. So what do you try to offer on your tasting menu at any given time? And I think, Amy, you might be the one to, to answer that question. Yeah, so um, at both locations, we are usually offering uh, three to four different flights to choose from. Of course, you can build your own flight, but I customize each flight and I try to make things that are going to have play fun together. So usually in a typical cider flight, you'll have a uh, something that's apples only, um, made only with apples, uh, something that's barrel aged, something that's uh, co-fermented with some fruit, and then some sort of like weirder wild card to finish it off with usually barrel aged and fruited. Um, and then I usually have, we have one flight called Sour and Spice, which I try to pick our more tart flavored ciders so a lot of people like sour ciders or sour beers so that's like usually the flight that I'll push towards those people Um, and then we have a flight that's kind of a blend of our hybrids like cider wine hybrids and um, more wine like ciders I would say and we call that anything goes sometimes you'll find a paquette in there sometimes you'll find um, a wine or just a mostly the cider wine hybrids, so either 50-50 cider wine, cider aged on grape skins, um, cider aged on aged with muscadine. And then we uh, have a wine flight that we always offer called the Vines Flight. That's going to be four different wines that we're featuring that week. Um, 
so that's typically what that looks like. <laughs> Very cool. I know we were just into the Asheville location not too long ago. And each of us had one of those flights, and I have to say they were very tasty. So, well, thank you. Yeah, and then you can always choose and make your own adventure. <laughs> Should, it's but it's a lot to choose from. So yeah, I was going to say it. it's a little overwhelming for me. <laughs> you <laughs> could be there all day. For me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's um, talk a little bit more about uh, getting that fruit for those wines and ciders. So um, I know we farm, work with farms, but there's also some foraging aspects as well. Yeah, that would be Lyndon. Yeah, so over the the last, I guess, four years, um, we've started to accumulate. I, I don't know if that's the right word, but we have we have sites where we have permission to go forage um, where there are feral apples, and so there's over two dozen sites across North Carolina, um, which in which we'll go do this. Um, and our Kether and I's grandfather actually has some land up in Pennsylvania. Um, a couple hundred acres when he first came over to the U.S. that he bought. And um, we were up there this summer, and we couldn't believe how many, how many feral apple trees there were up there. I think I found, you know, 45 in two hours just walking around the edges of the, the old pasture land. So we'll we'll go forage. Um, I mean, we forage for elderflowers, for um, blackberries and raspberries, um, serviceberry, um, pawpaw, and, of course, apples. Um, there's probably a few things I'm, I'm forgetting because we play with so many different fruits. Um, May pops one that, you know, you can go forage for. Um, and it's just something, you know, Ked and I grew up doing this um, with our grandfather and a grandmother. And it's just something um, that's never, you know, that, that's never slipped away from us. And so it's one of the things I, you know, when spring hits, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm just like a hawk for, for looking for apple flowers and, uh, and drop pins on my phone. So I have this huge library um, where all the trees are. And then we, we met um, Philip and Ruthie uh, who have Greenheart farm and they, they have, I wouldn't, this technically isn't foraging, but they have a bunch of wild and um, unnamed feral apples um, at, a, at an orchard that they have. That's really high elevation in North <laughs> Carolina, right near Max patch um, outside of Asheville. And so this year in particular, we have some, individual barrels with a hundred percent uh forage feral apple um that i'm just really excited about um and really excited to see because you know again in the southeast it's really hard to find um apples that are completely unmanipulated sure, in the orchard yeah. and these are those scenarios um so we have a, a forager series um that we put out um as botanist and barrel that are all kind of orchard and site specific so we have the farmer's orchard, we have the Greenheart Farms, we have um, one where we call um, where the wild things grow, um, and a, a whole series of them. So when you're, when you're out there foraging for apples, are you able mm -hmm. to identify which variety of apple it is sometimes, or is it, is it not possible? So, I mean, if, if you know what the variety is, um, you, would, you would be in an abandoned or, or forgotten orchard. Sure. Okay. Because, that makes sense. You know, apples don't grow true to seeds. So right, every time you right. plant an apple, it's different. It's going to be a different apple. Right. So if you're, if you're truly foraging, um, it's going to be a feral tree and by feral wild as in right. it's the only one on earth. So they're, they're typically unnamed. Um, you can name them if you discover them um, and you could take cuttings and propagate them. And, you know, maybe you have the, you know, you, the, the Lester apple or, or something, but, um, 
you know, most of them, you know, it takes time to learn them because you, you have no idea when um, the finishing starch and sugar and acid on this apple because it's never been documented. Right. So you kind of have to keep visiting it every week and watch its progression and keep tasting and tasting and tasting. Um, and then over the course of, you know, two or three years, you really get to learn each individual tree. And then, you know, when it's at its peak and then sometimes feral apple trees just aren't good for making cider. Um, and you need to use it for something else like making applesauce or pie or whatever it may be. Makes sense. Can you talk a little bit more about what kind of apple is the best for making cider? Oh yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're all about, we do a few single varietal apples, um, but we're all about field blends. And the reason, you know, there's so many different apples on earth. Um, but here in the South, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of heirloom apples that are awesome for making cider. And these are, you know, the bitter sharps um, and the bitter sweets. And what you're, you know, what you're looking for is like, you know, anything that makes that, you know, something beautiful on your palate has balance. So, you know, you need acid, tannin, sugar, um, you need all of those things. And a lot of the apples we um, are accustomed to, um, you know, the pink ladies and the, um, you know, the Fuji and the Gala and stuff that you get at the grocery store, you know, these are apples that have been selected and propagated through time for their, for their, for this, for their fresh taste. Um, so they're usually like really high in sugar, have like a nice crisp bite to them. So they're like fun, texturally fresh. And um, some of these make decent cider and many of them are great in blends, but solo, um, they're not, you know, they don't make the best cider. And so we're looking for apples that when you bite into them are just going to dry your mouth out so bad. So it would, it's like, a, you know, like licking a stuffed animal almost. Um, <laughs> those are the apples I, I liked. Yeah. Yeah, those, a, a small amount of those in cider is beautiful. Right. So like, we'll even pick these little like dime-sized Manchurian crabs oh, wow. that you would never dream of eating. Um, I mean, but just like 5% of them in a blend of cider just makes the whole thing come to life with all that tannin. Right. And those are good points about, about the blends and the things you're looking for. Uh, certainly good things to consider. And I think Heather and Derek, one of you two is chiming in there too. Um, the gold rush is one that we found is uh, is beautiful on a cheese plate and also works really well. Um, it, I mean, it's okay solo, but also really nice in a blend. So it's fun when you can find those things that, that cross over well. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. We haven't made any yet, but I've, I've enjoyed judging some cider competitions and trying Macintosh, 100% Macintosh apple. Mm. Ciders and they make some really good cider. Usually, you know, coming from the West Coast, but um, I don't. Know we, I mean, I'm sure we have Macintosh apples here. But yeah, there's plenty. There's so, Macintosh. Yeah. And we did we did a cider um, this summer. It was the first pressing we did with um, 100% Gala apple, and it, we learned that when when Gala's young, it's it, it's really beautiful. Um, it almost had this like bubblegummy quality hmm. to it that I thought was really fun. Oh, um, so sometimes it's just about you know timing to. Um, yeah, and I'm right. sure. So, the gala grown in North Carolina are going to be different than gala grown in New York and right. gala grown in yeah. California. You know, and the weather and the seasons and all that stuff. So, it's right. uh, there's just Terrible. so much diversity. Well, we've been we put the gala into a pet nut because that's a very young cider to make, and so we tasted it and we liked it as it was now, and we were afraid for it to get weirder with age because like gala doesn't have a lot of tannin and texture that we're yeah. looking for in cider. So, but young and fresh and a pet nut, it was 
beautiful and you know mm -hmm. and some of the grassy kind of weirder characteristics i think that would come out from aging mm -hmm. that apple yeah my my personal favorite is arkansas black because yes. it's a long yeah yeah and uh so the sugar um concentrates but the acid still has backbone so the the structure is really beautiful and it ages very very well yeah, yeah that's kind of been our flagship um here you know single varietal apple uh over the years we always make an arkansas black and write the bottled in date which is our vintage since they don't let us put vintage on ciders like wine <laughs> um and we usually make a hundred percent gold rush as Kether was saying. And this year we're going to blend them together in a new cider. Is it called black and gold? It's just black and gold, yeah. black and gold. So I'm, I'm excited for that one to come out. I think that's getting packaged here pretty short soon, Kether and Derek. <laughs> so is that, is that in collaboration with app state or wake forest or, uh, <laughs> certainly could do black oh, and yeah, gold. Cause that's that. their, their school colors. Black, you know, we should have, we should have reached out and, and arranged. Oh, we should. <laughs> there you go. Sponsorship. I like that idea. Get, get an alumni club yeah. involved or something. Yeah. Like Those people I have like it. <laughs> Especially Wake Forest. <laughs> um, so in the foraging, like what's the most unusual fruit that you've come across and actually have used in a cider or wine or what you would consider maybe it most unusual? Um, you know, well, this is really interesting. You know, Derek and I have both gone and done, you know, foraging in different times. And, you know, Derek got these, like this beautiful sumac and we wanted to call it Persian love story, but apparently um, the federal regulators don't allow you to make uh sumac and cider. So we had to abandon that. Um, I think, you know, Maypop, I think is one of the more interesting ones. Um, it's, it's like a native, uh, it's passion flower or like passion fruit. That's, that's native to the mountains of North Carolina. Um, that's, you know, super tasty. Um, it's taken us two years to accumulate enough to actually make like a really small run. Um, but one of the coolest things that, that I've personally experienced with foraging was um, this season, um, I found uh, a wild apple that had uh, pink flesh. Huh. And there are red flesh apples, um, you know, that have been named. And it's kind of like a one of the things that's really hot in cider right now is is a natural rosé cider. Um, but just finding like a feral one um, was just really striking. Definitely looking so forward that, to that one. The flesh inside is pink, and that actually makes a pink rosé cider without having to add any other fruits or color, you know. Yeah, any other source of color like blueberry or blackberry, raspberry. So let's maybe talk a little bit more about the special, kind of the specialty ciders. So maybe Derek, can you talk a little bit about um, those and, and how, you know, how that program, I guess, evolves over the time frame? Yeah, I, I guess that, that story starts with me with pawpaws. Um, and, and that can be directly correlated with my past and, um, and dessert making and, and, you know, curating uh, programs that, uh, that allow me to build relationships with other producers, specifically, I can, from this example, pawpaws. So relationships that carry over um, to procure, um, you know, you know, different fruits. And over time, it's sort of, you know, uh, expanded into everybody, you know, because it's a fun thing. Everybody puts in what they, what they want to do as well. Um, but talking about pawpaws specifically, um, you know, 
it, it's you go into the the project and you're doing pilot, you know, batches and um, you know, and then we then we scale up. So it's a really it's a really amazing thing to be able to uh, to to have one small you know test batch and then you know working up to something that is um, going to be to scale uh, is is super exciting and pawpaws in general you know are um, very very elegant you know in their in their co-fermentation uh, life stage when when everything is going on uh, in tank um, and so for for me it's it's a, a really beautiful balance of you know being able to to use things that don't that you know other you know people might not be able to you know you know work with on a day-to-day basis you know yeah also um we we like to do collaborations so we've made some some ciders where other people kind of bring ideas to the table and then Derek finds a way to execute it using you know his culinary background to, to balance those flavors in the, the proper proportion. Mm-hmm. So like the, the don't fret that and the have level bramble and yep. um, the getting medieval. Yep. So we you know incorporated right. like ginger and turmeric and things and finding the right balance of oh, we've, citrus yeah. and grapes and you know just and it doesn't just, just yeah, play in with exactly with what goes into the cider. It, it also extends to sour cultures and um, barrel fermentation, um, you know, all of those, all of those different, you know, aspects of making something, you know, a, a specialty cider, you know, um, we're talking about wild fermentation. And, um, and so, you know, those are just different things that we've brought to the table with collaborations with other folks. I mean, we've done everything from, you know, smoke persimmons on blueberry wood, you know, to, you know, you know, blending those, that aspect of it with pawpaw cider and making really, really interesting, <laughs> interesting, you know, ciders, you know, throughout the years. So it's been a, it's been a challenge um, to say, you know, to, to, to say one aspect of it, but it's rewarding and it's just it's fun, you know, because uh, we don't really, our minds are never really resting. Yeah, fun <laughs> for us and fun for the guest. That's right. And I would imagine. Always trying to do something new and different. Yes. And Derek, I would imagine your culinary background helps with uh, coming up with all of these combinations and collaborations and understanding the yeah. flavor profiles that go together and that sort of thing. So, yep. um, and it's, it's a, it, you know, it, it, we're, we're in a round table, you know, um, um, uh, relationship. So it's, it's always evolving and, and other, other people, uh, everybody's ideas sort of bounce off of each other, you know, too. So, yeah. yeah, it all works. I know yeah. we recently had the uh, Let's Dance collaboration you guys did with Honey Girl Meadery. Yeah. The lavender mead from, from there, your dry cider. That was phenomenal. Uh, yeah, that was fun. We got to like hang out and taste a bunch of cider and taste mead and then blend them together and then come up with a plan yep. and then execute it. Yeah, so. Diane's doing some cool stuff for sure. Yeah. And together. It was, it was magic. They, yeah, and they did one with us too with um, some pear cider we gave them. I mean, some perry. Yeah. With uh, one of their meads as well that turned out really nice mm-hmm. called Wild Pear. Oh. Um, but they sold out of that already. But maybe Bummer. we'll do something like that again. Yeah. yeah sure. I like the two way collaboration. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. it's awesome. And, and, and it's another North Carolina producer. So that's, that's also cool. Yeah. So talking about two ways, uh, let's talk about the two locations that you have. 
Um, yeah. So you have you have the tasting room in Cedar Forest, and you Cedar also have Grove. a Cedar Grove. I'm sorry, I wrote Cedar Forest. You have the tasting room in Cedar Grove, uh, and then also the uh, tasting room and in, in bar in Asheville. So tell us about the challenges of, of each of those locations, right, and also the, the joys. I'm sure there are some joys. There's definitely a lot of joys. Um, the Cedar Grove location is interesting because it's very rural. You know, it's a, an old farm, but then we're in an old warehouse and, you know, we're, it's like the blueberries are there, but you don't quite see them. So we're trying to make it a warm and welcoming environment, even though it's not necessarily the most beautiful place, but we've made it a relaxing and welcoming place. Um, but all the seating is outdoors. So that poses some, some challenges with, you know, this colder winter weather that we're having and, when it rains. Uh, so we've built a little covered area and then in the summer we focus on umbrellas. And, um, but it's, yeah, it's a fun, like ever, ever evolving and changing journey, trying to get people to come out and find new way, you know, new events and new ways to, you know, keep people engaged. Derek also has a, a really awesome new toy out there, which is oh, yes. a pretty <laughs> awesome wood fired pizza oven. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. We've we've added a whole new wrinkle into the experience out there. Um, oh yeah, on the days when that thing's fired up, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, right. <laughs> that our cider makers are also chefs. That's right. <laughs> and in in Asheville, like I like to describe the two locations um, very simply. Like Cedar Grove is like botanist and barrel in a barn, and then. Asheville is like botanist and barrel goes to Manhattan. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good way to describe good. it. Both locations. Uh, very like, you know, if you look at them um, side by side, you would not even recognize them as being under the same umbrella essentially. But I'll let, I'll let Amy talk about um, the challenges of, of Asheville. Oh, no, I mean, you kind of, uh, it's, well, we, we're in a very small space, so you can imagine, um, the challenges with COVID and, and opening in during COVID in the past six months. Um, but that's also why it's kind of nice because we only have about 20 seats um, in our Asheville location, but um, it's also a bottle shop. So you can kind of, and we did that on purpose because we wanted to be able to pivot. And if we couldn't be open, we could just sell bottles or curbside pickup and stuff like that. And just be another outlet for to sell botanist barrel bottles in Asheville ourselves and be able to educate this market um, ourselves about our ciders directly, which this is one of our most responsive markets to our ciders in general. I would say Asheville and Durham are probably our biggest markets in the state. And um, they like, they like to keep it weird. So we fit in quite well in Asheville. (laughs) Yeah. The the hardest part for me in Asheville is, you know, you know, Asheville is a tourist destination. Yep. And so, you know, people just walk by and they see, you know, cidery winery in the windows and they walk in and they don't necessarily realize they're walking into probably the nerdiest wine bar in the South. (laughs) Um, So there's, you know, the education aspect can be challenging, especially when people are on vacation and they don't want to be educated. They just want to, they just want to chill. And I totally get that. And so that's part of why we have the bottle shop there too, is because, you know, we have, um, a guest wine list that are wines from, you know, all over the world and other North Carolina wines too. But, you know, so anybody can walk in and find something that, um, that they're going to love. Yeah, you kind of have to have something for everyone. It's, yeah. uh, whereas like in Cedar Grove, I feel like it's 30 minutes from anything. So 30 minutes from Durham, Chapel Hill, 
about an hour from Raleigh. Um, so you really, it's kind of a purposeful destination, right. mm-hmm. you know, unless you happen to be our neighbor in Cedar Grove, which we <laughs> love our neighbors and we got quite a few regulars of those come that come out yep. and we're, but we're starting to get our Asheville regulars too. And now that, um, the kind of tourist season has come to a close in Asheville, I've noticed just in the past couple of weeks, all the locals coming out more cause they just don't come out during, they don't come downtown we're, we're smack heart in the heart of downtown Asheville. Um, so, you know, during tourist season, it's hard to park and uh, locals don't want to deal with that. <laughs> Makes so sense. I've been, um, enjoying meeting some locals the past couple of weeks. <laughs> but, Very cool. Both are, both are cool spots. Both are cool for their, for different reasons. And everyone should go out and check out both locations uh, for those yes. unique experiences. They both offer a very different botanist and barrel and a very different light and different experience. Yes, for sure. We do tours on Sunday, which is, it's fun. People come, you know, get like the full, the full explanation and we dive really deep and people ask questions and then hang out as long as you want. Yeah, Cedar Grove is really yeah. the heart and soul because you can see all the production equipment sure. and see how we make it and our barrel, you know, our basket press and all the hundreds of barrels are up right out there for you to see and you can barrel taste and taste stuff right from the tanks and stuff, which we can't do that in Nashville. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a little hard in that small space, huh? <laughs> yeah. And particularly because production's in Cedar Grove. So um, maybe let's talk a little bit about what's left the b- biggest impact over uh, these last few years of business. Uh, maybe let's start with Kether. Oh God. That's, I don't know. That's such a loaded question. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, for me personally, I am like not a risk taker. So doing this at all was this crazy leap for me. And it's just been a total roller coaster ride. There's been so many bumps and challenges along the way, but it has been so rewarding. And all of the people that I've met from like, all over the world. And it's really fun in particular to have, you know, guests from Europe and be like, oh, this reminds me of home. But um, yeah, it's just, it's been a really interesting, um, challenging and rewarding journey. Derek, what about for you? Um, for, for me, I would think uh, the, symbi- the symbiosis of, of, of community. So it's from, you know, my former life in, in the culinary field, uh, forging a relationship with foragers um, and uh, and farmers and um, different other craftspeople who are like-minded and, um, you know, building a community um, where everybody is moving forward from orchardists uh, to vineyard managers to, yeah, like I said, other, other um, uh, people who are like-minded and doing what we're doing. Linda? Yeah, I agree with Derek. Amy? <laughs> I mean, I'd say the, the the biggest impact is just, you know, when we set out on this project, you know, we weren't sure that anybody would enjoy what we were wanted to make. And the the response um, from our community, just locally, and then, you know, we never thought that we would get emails from people in Scott, in Ireland that wanted to import botanist and barrel to kind of like the homeland of cider. I mean, so, so for us, I mean, what's left the biggest impact is that I think when you, um, you know, it's a little bit of like the field of dreams mentality. Like when you set out to do something that you truly believe in, you're not sure it's going to work. Um, but I think when you put out there like, like true passion and love for what you're doing, 
um, there's a response to it. Um, and so the biggest impact is that that response is there. And cause it's one of those things like you just don't know if it's, if it's real, but we've learned, um, that it's real. Y'all just nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot has happened in, in five years and we've, we've grown a lot and it's really we've just been from the support of our community. But yeah, getting to hang out with like our idols that are, that we idolize as cider makers and winemakers and kind of being part of that community now is really pretty amazing and exciting and, and being able to learn from them and have them ask us questions even um and you know just yeah educating people about natural cider and wine and um how that helps the environment and seeing people make changes in the way that they're making wine even locally we, we've um influenced some of our neighbors here and um Leicester, North Carolina, Addison just Addison Vineyards just made their first pet nut cider, and um, Lyndon helped them with that. So that was really exciting to see someone kind of step out of their box and try something new, you know. And I hope we see more of that in the future. So let's talk. A, you, you mentioned the environment, and and we've talked, we've kind of touched on it uh, as we move through the conversation. But let's talk about climate change and how that's impacting some of the decisions that you make, or some of are the ability to get the fruit that you want and that sort of thing. Um, Cause you know, it's something that's real. That's that we're dealing with. Uh, so how does it impact the business that you do? Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, this is actually what I, you know, studied in college um, was specifically environmental economics. And so, you know, one of the reasons that less is more is our whole mentality is I think it's, it's often lost that, you know, if you're, if you're manipulating or you're adding inputs into your wine, that those inputs had to be made somewhere. Um, you know, they had to be mined or manufactured. And so, so much um, about our entire ethos and philosophy and way of being is that the least amount that we can um, take or use um, is, is what we, is, you know, what we want to do. We still want to have a beautiful product um, at the end of the day, um, but we want to do it with as little manipulation as as, as possible. And then in terms of, you know, looking at it from, from the other lens and how does environmental change impact what we're doing as a business? Um, you know, I, we've been planting, you know, we have a farm there in Cedar Grove and we have a small propagation farm, um, you know, right outside of Asheville and Leicester too. And so the reason we have this propagation farm is that we're, we're putting down, uh, so many different varieties so that we are, um, as malleable as one could be in the farm and agriculture so that we could move fast um, as things change because the earth is changing. Um, and what's growing well now is going to shift through time. And we want to be prepared for that shift. And this is one of the reasons we have so many sites across North Carolina from really high elevation um, to much lower elevation, uh, you know, in central North Carolina and the Piedmont with all types of different soil structures um, and microclimates. And so, you know, for us, it's just about, um, you know, hedging all of hedging all of our bets. And so in any given year, you know, even on our, in our own farm, we've of the six years we've been farming blueberries, we've only had two years in which we had a full crop. Um, you know, every apple tree um, got hit with late frost that we have here in Leicester. But the site up at Max Patch, which had nothing last year, was just loaded this year. And so, you know, when you have this that many different sites, um, that's one way we're we're trying to 
to be flexible um, with the uncertainty that you know brings. Yeah, and I think that you see winemakers from California and Oregon and Washington. You know, the land is so expensive. The climate change is crazy. Like you know, all the flooding and all the fires and everything. And you and there's a lot of winemakers that are moving out of California and looking where's the next you know best land to and virginia is definitely one in north carolina we're right next door so i think you know we've already had some people move up nico i think was actually Mm -hmm. from california and he moved here from stardust and um and i think we're going to see a lot more of that people and and it'll be less about california washington oregon wine it'll be more about american wine you know what i mean and like i want to it'd be great to put North Carolina on the map, you know, like, like Virginia has really done really well with their wine program. And I think we're, you know, maybe 20 years behind that or so, or maybe not that much, but. Yeah. yeah, You're actually seeing a a group of, um, of small wineries kind of unite together to talk about undiscovered regions. I mean, you have some amazing winemakers up in Wisconsin. You have some folks down in Texas, um, like Alta Marfa is doing amazing work in the middle of a desert, Texas. There's a lot of good Texas wineries. Um, yeah. And so you're, you know, there's a lot of these places that aren't, uh, I think, put on the pedestal, um, but that are that are up and coming. Mm-hmm. And I think climate change um, could hurt some of those people and could benefit um, some of those folks as well. You know, it's really hard to, it's really hard to know. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And, and definitely the, uh, one of the keys there, that message of, of that site variation, that's, I think that's definitely an important thing for, Mm-hmm. cider makers and winemakers, particularly in, in the Southeast and mid Atlantic to consider because you mentioned Lake frost and that seems to happen most every year. Now uh, we have that warm February and then, then we have a cold snap yeah. in March or April. And, and so it's good to have those options available um, to be able to source fruit from other places. So as we're winding down with the conversation, um, maybe let's talk a little bit about, What's something that you want customers to know? And then someone tell us exactly how to find each location and how to find you guys on the internet uh, and social media. You know, I, I think what, you know, what we want folks to know about Botanist and Barrel is that we're, we're going to put forward um, the best expression of a sense of place um, with everything that we're doing. And that at the end of the day, we want you to feel really good about what you're drinking before, after, and, and during. And so it, it needs to be grown right, it needs to taste right, and it needs to leave you feeling um, positive and healthy. That's awesome. That's, again, then, another really good philosophy. Yeah. And then if, if folks want to find us, um, you can find us online at botanistandbarrel.com for the Cedar Grove location. And just for, you know, if you want to, you know, have a cider shipped to your doorstep. Um, and then if you want to find us in Asheville, we're, we, yeah, we ship to 38, 39 States. And, and if you want to find us in Asheville that, uh, you find us at botanist and barrel And we are right in the heart of downtown Asheville, uh, on Broadway street. And, and you can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, all those things. And we are just botanist and barrel or botanist and barrel Asheville. And if people want to drive 30 minutes from uh, Raleigh, Durham, from Durham or Chapel Hill yeah. or anywhere else, how, how, where's the location in Cedar Grove? The Cedar Grove location is uh, north of Hillsboro between Hillsboro and Prospect Hill. 
So Northern Orange County, uh, right off of Highway 86. 30 minutes from most locations. Yes. Well, we definitely encourage everyone to, to plan a trip. Uh, we would encourage everyone to, to visit both locations for, as we said earlier, for those unique experiences and check out uh, all the great natural cider and wines that Watson Barrel offers. Oh, thank yeah. you so much. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's fun. Well, Kether, Derek, Amy, and Lyndon, thank you very much. Uh, definitely appreciate the conversation, and we'll talk soon. Sounds thank good. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for having us. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to the team at Botanist and Barrel. We hope you learn about some different styles of wine and cider and encourage you to go out and try them for yourself. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. Do you know we have a Patreon page? You'll get patron-only content, early access to each show, and more when you sign up. You can find more information at patreon.com slash corktalk. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember... Cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! Cork Talk is a free run LLC production. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.